Well, tis the season of guests. Maybe you are expecting a few guests this season, or maybe you're about to be a guest somewhere. Al and Corey Kunesh, who live in Montana, are expecting a few visitors this Christmas season. Last year, they reported they had at least 3,000 cars stop at their driveway. This year, they expect it to be five to 8,000. It began 15 years ago when their first grandchild was born, and they decided to decorate the outside of their home to light up the eyes of their little girl. 15 years later, they are lighting up 20,000 Christmas bulbs. It takes 80 hours of decorating, and things like a moving reindeer, that makes sense, a polar bear, and of course, the traditional dolphin jumping into a pool with steam and light coming off of it. What would Christmas be without Elmo just outside of a life-size Santa's workshop with moving elves inside? And of course, Snoopy's doghouse with all the characters. They add decorations every year, and it gets bigger and bigger, and word spreads. Last year, they added a life-sized working carousel with lighted horses moving around it. Now, inside their house, they only have one decoration, a six-inch Christmas tree sitting on their table. But outside, outside, cars line up around the block every night. Cars line up as far as a mile away, trying to get a glimpse of what everyone wants to see, the Christmas extravaganza in their town. Have you ever noticed how Christmas has a way of turning things ordinary into being something over the top? I mean, an ordinary yard can be transformed into winter wonderland. Even, even simple things are more beautiful at Christmas. There might be a, a mailbox that you drive by every day, but this season it's wrapped in garland with a bow on it. Or maybe a concrete office building, very plain. Someone figured out how to light up the offices inside into the shape of a Christmas tree at night. Everyday objects can become objects of celebration. I mean, what other holiday possesses people to spend 80 hours in their yard? And who knows how much on an electric bill. Christmas moves people to do strange things out of the ordinary things. Think about it. At any other time of year, any other time, if you looked across the street and saw your neighbors dragging a dead tree into their house, would you wonder, what's wrong with those people? This time of year, a dead tree is a normal thing to have in your house. Christmas is a time when even ordinary things are made extraordinary. We have sometimes come to think of the nativity as just one of those decorations in the yard. Or maybe an extraordinary place lit up with spotlights, a decorative scene that we might put in our houses. Maybe you grew up with nativities around. Maybe there was one you couldn't touch, something decorative and expensive, something really beautiful. But really, the, the first nativity was a very ordinary place. The, the manger has become almost just another yard decoration next to Elmo and the carousel and the jumping dolphin, we sometimes light it up so much, but everything in that scene was perfectly ordinary. I mean, nothing, nothing was more ordinary in those days than a group of shepherds standing in a field watching their sheep. 
It's amazing to me, really, that the shepherds even made the history books. There's absolutely nothing remarkable about them. Ordinary shepherds watching ordinary sheep on a very ordinary night. There were, Luke says, in the same country, watching their flocks by night, some shepherds. Special shepherds? Good shepherds? He just says, some shepherds living in the field. This was, this was home for them. Most of the time, they were living out in the fields. This is not a 40-hour-a-week job. They didn't come home at night. They were with those sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week. During the day, they led the sheep to water and to pasture and watched while they grazed. They kept out an eye for predators like wolves. At night, they actually slept in the pen across the place where a gate would be to guard those sheep against theft and attack. I remember as a child thinking about the story of the boy David preparing to meet Goliath and thinking about his slingshot skills, right? Didn't you want one of those? And how maybe, you know, in this story, when he's out in the fields with his sheep, he's preparing by fighting off the bear, the lion, the predator. But really, what what percentage of their time do you think shepherds spend with a slingshot? What percentage of their time is really this exciting moment that they could tell a story about? And what percentage is spent staring at the same landscape day after day, the same sheep, the same field? This is, this is a mundane, unremarkable life. And living in a field makes you far from a beautiful, Christmas-breakable, China-type decoration shepherd. Think dirt. Think the smell of sheep. These shepherds were unable to keep the Jewish standards for being ceremonial clean. They weren't able to go into worship to enter or offer a sacrifice. They were outsiders. They roamed. They lived outdoors. Anytime something was stolen, the shepherds were the first to be blamed. Are you missing something on your property? I think I saw some shepherds around. Now, I want you to picture being in the heavenly choir that's been warming up and preparing right behind heaven's curtain, knowing that you get to be one of the angels to sing and announce the birth of the Messiah. You have been working on your harmonies for a long time now. The soprano descant will just wow them at the end. This choral piece is going to knock the socks off of humanity. Hopefully, you think, hopefully a full house, maybe even all of Bethlehem will hear you. Maybe the whole region will listen up. And when the curtains open, you see that God has assigned you to sing to a handful of grubby, ordinary shepherds out standing in a field. This would be like getting ready to sing on stage at Carnegie Hall and finding out your audience is the maintenance crew. But what what if, what if God chose these shepherds to announce his birth specifically because there is nothing special about them? What if this God specializes in the ordinary? What if God loves to take the normal, ordinary moments and do something really special with them? After they experienced the Hallelujah Chorus from the angels up close, these shepherds headed over to Bethlehem to find the baby, to take a look. And and what did they find there? What they found was just as ordinary as they were. I'm not sure what they expected to see, but I can imagine them saying when they looked into the manger, why, he looks just like any other baby. 
any other baby that they had seen. As a matter of fact, except for their stunning announcement, the only thing stunning about this birth was exactly how ordinary it was. There he is, just as the angel said, lying in a feeding trough for the animals in a setting that the shepherds would have been completely familiar with. And in that moment, these ordinary shepherds found someone that they could completely identify with. And they worshipped. And their hearts were changed. And do you know where they went next? Right back to the field. Their mundane lives didn't change in the day-to-day. What was changed was them. What better way for God to announce himself to the world than by choosing the most ordinary of folks to receive his first invitation to Christmas? Christmas Eve 1958, there was a British couple in the English countryside. They were having a quiet Christmas celebration at home. And they lived out on a country road in the countryside when they were puzzled by a knock that came at their door. They weren't expecting visitors. It was just the two of them. They had no close neighbors. They were well off the main road. So they were puzzled when they answered the door and found there a mother and her 10-year-old son The mother explained they had been out for a drive in the snow. It it was a chance to get the young boy out of the house for a while on Christmas Eve when he had been fidgety. And as they were driving, their car skidded on ice, and it lodged into a snowbank, and they had to walk a mile or so down the road, all bundled up. And, And this, this was the first house that they came to, and they asked, could we use your phone? I mean, of course, the couple said, and they welcomed them in. The 10-year-old boy, Charlie, he seemed ex- especially excited to be there. He, he stared at everything in the house intently, and he was, he was very polite, very well-mannered for a, a 10-year-old boy in a stranger's home on Christmas Eve. And as his mother finished using the phone and sat down, she unwrapped some of her winter layers. She took off Charlie's hat and scarf and her own, and and the couple realized there was something oddly familiar about them. But, but no, they thought. Surely not. It couldn't be. But, but it was. The, the next knock at their door was the royal guard, the equivalent of the Secret Service, flustered and thankful to have found the mother and son, Prince Charles and Queen Elizabeth. They had taken a drive out in the country really snuck away from the people that were supposed to be guarding them just to get a little ordinary moment as a mother and son on a Christmas Eve. And when their car skidded into the snowbank, they had to depend on the hospitality of commoners. And now that their identities were revealed, they just said thank you and simply left. And the couple stood there in their doorway with their mouths hanging open. I'm sure they started to ask questions. Why did we just offer them tea? We could have found our bottle of best champagne. We could have gotten out the best glasses. Oh, why did we have her sit in that old chair? Look at the house, the state that it's in. How did we just welcome the queen and crown prince of England into our house without knowing it? But the the chair... And the tea, that's not what the queen and the prince had noticed at all. They were just thankful for the hospitality. They were glad to share this couple's home for a short time. You know, Prince Charles is a a grandfather himself now, but he's said in interviews that he's never forgotten that night. 
It's one of his most vivid childhood memories. Imagine how different that moment was from every other Christmas Eve that he had spent. He didn't need to be impressed. In fact, I'm not sure there was anything they could have done to impress him. It wasn't, it wasn't luxury they were seeking. It, it was friendship. It was an open door and an ordinary welcome. Not unlike another boy king who would come unexpectedly into the world, knocking on the door and waiting to be welcomed. Did they really think anything that they could do to put on airs would impress a prince? Did you really think that anything that you could do to dress up the ordinary of your life would make God notice you more, love you more, want to be with you more? Or was it the ordinary of you that he wanted the most? It's amazing how we make everything about Christmas into a big special occasion when the mundane and ordinary way that Christ chose to appear tells us precisely that loving Jesus is not for special occasions. I can imagine him looking at the way we celebrate his birth now and saying, thanks for the party. Thanks for all those lights and the carousel and the dolphin. The tinsel's great. But what I really came for, what I really want, is every ordinary moment with you. I mean, if this God is big enough only for the spectacular moments, then he's not really big at all. But if he's big enough to infiltrate the smallest moments, the most ordinary things in our lives, if he won't be pigeonholed onto a Sunday morning or into a theology class or your devotional time, if he is able to invade every second of your average mundane day, well, then he's probably bigger than any of us ever imagined. I've thought about this a lot in this semester of emphasis on the spirit-filled life. You know, we, we've spent this semester crying out to the Holy Spirit to fill us individually in our community, to come in, in big ways. We've asked God to bring repentance and cleansing, transformation and revival. We have prayed some big, hairy, audacious prayers this semester, and, and we have seen God show up. And this altar, I, I've never seen it this full. People have been healed in this community. Did you know that? People have been freed from struggles that they have been captive to for most of their lives. We, we've anointed one another with prayer. We've cried out, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, over and over again. And it's been fantastic, and it is not done. We're halfway through the Spirit-filled life, and I can't even imagine what God's going to do next semester. But a Spirit-filled life doesn't just include God at the altar, because this is the God in the fields, in the most mundane moments the shepherds could know. This is the God in the stable with the animals in the frailest form known to human life, a tiny baby that can't lift his head. If this is the God of the fields and the stable, then he's got to be the God of doing the dishes. He's got to be the God of helping your kid do his homework. Or maybe, for most of you, someone else helping you do your homework. This is the God of the morning commute and the evening run. This is the God in the library, at the desk, in the classroom. This is the God who wants space in every conversation, at every meal, in every last assignment, and in every moment of doubt or fear or joy. 
Think, think for a moment. Can, can you picture something that you do every day? Anything. Just get it in your mind. If, if you can picture something you can do every day, hold up one finger. You got another one? Do you have two things you do every day? Maybe a, a person you talk with every day? Add another finger. Maybe a, an internal conversation you have with yourself just about every day? What else? Can you get a whole hand of things that you do? I mean, a lot of our lives are very repetitive. Could you pause in the middle of those things today and say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I mean, if you can, then you're out in the fields with the shepherds. You're ready for the hallelujah chorus. This God wants something more than just the special events of our lives. He wants the details. But if we reserve only the special occasions in our lives, if we compartmentalize him into spiritual time and then there's the rest of the time, then we miss out on the moments that the incarnation was most made for, the ordinary moments. I'm not saying God doesn't work in those big, extraordinary, miraculous ways and instantaneous healing and crying out in prayer. He does. But if he's a God that can enter only the big magical moments in our lives, then he's nothing more than a showman, a magician, but a God who manages to make a miracle out of the mundane is one who can identify with every need that we have. And there are a lot of needs. Have you noticed? I mean, the earth is chock full of needs and sin and brokenness it started the day that sin infected the earth, <clears throat> and, and sin didn't stay in its place. It, it spread into all the places that we have. It's infiltrated every person, every relationship, even down to the ground we walk on. In Genesis 3, when sin was beginning to unfold and we began to understand where it would go, Adam was told this by God, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Really? It even seeped into the dirt. I think this is why Joy to the World is admittedly my favorite Advent song. Because instead of staying in the manger or in the sky with the hallelujah chorus, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and declares that the birth of Christ is the beginning of God fixing every little thing, every mundane thing, the thorns, the thistles, the weeds, the dirt. No more let sin and sorrow grow, it says, nor thorns infect the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. If sin sucked the goodness out of the very dirt that we walk on, what was once productive and flourishing, that means that God wants to pour goodness into the air we breathe, the dirt that we wash off of our feet. This God who announced with all the beauty of heaven to ordinary shepherds who brought the chorus of angels for these unremarkable, unnamed people called some shepherds, then this is a God who will not leave one stone unturned. He will not leave one sin untouched. He will reach in to the most broken places that you didn't even know still needed healing because his grace is more contagious than sin every time. If the miracles are big enough to heal the smallest brokenness, 
then heaven and nature can sing together because it's not just hallelujah in the heavens. It's hallelujah in the dirt. I want to tell you one last Christmas story, and it may not sound very much like a Christmas story. It's not one we tell at this time of year. It's, it's adapted from a parable that Kierkegaard told to explain the beauty of Christmas and why the mundane mattered to God. There once was a king, and this king loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree. She had no education, no standing in the royal court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a hovel. She lived the ragged life of a peasant, but for a reason that no one could figure out, the king came to love her, and love her he did. Why he should love her, it was beyond explaining. He could not stop loving her. And one day the king had an anxious thought. How in the world was he going to reveal his love to this girl? How could he bridge the chasm between the two of them? He went to his advisors and, and they told him, of course, that all he had to do was to command her to become his queen and it would be done. For he was a man of immense power. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign power trembled before him. Every citizen groveled in the dust at the king's voice. This poor peasant girl, she had no power to resist. She would have to become the queen. But you know, even unlimited power cannot command love. The king could force her in body to be present in the palace, but he could not force love to be present in her heart. He might be able to obtain her obedience, but coerced submission was not at all what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of the heart and oneness of the spirit. And all of the power of the world cannot unlock the human heart. It must be opened from within. He could shower her with gifts. He, he could dress her in purple and silk. He could have her crowned queen. But he thought if he, if he brought her to his palace, if he radiated the sun of his magnificence over her, if she saw all this wealth and pomp and power and greatness, then how would he ever know that she loved him for himself or for all instead that he had given her? And how could she know that he loved her? And would love her still, even if she remained a peasant. Every alternative he came up with came to nothing. No one he asked had an answer, and he realized there was only one way. So one day the king arose, took off his crown, relinquished his scepter, laid aside his royal robes, and he took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, released his identity, he groveled for food. He dwelt in a hovel. He didn't just take on the outward appearance of a servant. He became a servant. It was his actual life, his actual nature, his actual burden. He became as ragged as the one that he loved so that she could be his and he hers forever. It was the only way. And his raggedness became the very signature of his presence. That's the end of that story. That's where the parable stops, the end of the story about how Jesus loves and comes as one of us. But those of us trained by Walt Disney are waiting 
We're wondering, when will the other shoe drop? I mean, it can't end there. When does the king announce his identity? When does he say that they will go back to the castle to live happily ever after? When does he bestow great wealth and power? Jesus' desire was to come and live where we live, to enter the same struggles that we enter, and to show us how great his desire was for us to love. He didn't kick down the door of the human heart because it can only be opened from within. And the story ends there because the incarnation is no party trick. It's no bait and switch. The incarnate Son of God is not just a temporary costume. God loves the ordinary. He loves ordinary shepherds. He loves the ordinary you. He wants to be welcome in the things that happen every day, not just the special events. Really, he wants it all. The shepherds tell us that no degree earned no grade received, no ladder climbed, no accomplishment sought will ever draw the love and attention of God because we already have it. And he's waiting in the smallest and lowest of places to tell us that no moment in life is too small to be flooded, flooded with the light of his love. Let's pray. Lord God, you opened heaven that first Christmas night and announced that the most beautiful event in history had come. God, I'm so amazed at who you chose for that first invitation. Lord, make us ordinary enough to hear you. Make us mundane enough to receive you the way the shepherds did. Lord, change our hearts and then send us back to the fields. God, will you sing not just from heaven, but from nature and dirt and earth? And will you once again help us to unlock the doors that only we can unlock and let you in? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.